Acts 17. So we've been looking through Acts since uh, April. Big idea, Acts 1-8, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. The back half of Acts is all about the ends of the earth. Paul is the main character. We saw last week he's on his second major missionary journey. Uh, We looked at him in Philippi and he's got Silas as his partner. Timothy is his apprentice and Luke, who wrote Acts, comes fades in and out during this time. And so they were in Philippi. Paul and Silas are preaching. There's a response. And then uh, there's a, a girl who's got a who's demonized. She's possessed by the spirit that allows her to predict the future. Paul casts this demon out of her. It upsets her owners because now they can't make money off of her anymore. And so they accuse Paul and Silas of stirring up trouble. Paul and Silas are severely beaten. They're thrown in jail. Their response to suffering, and that was our word last week, was how do we respond in the face of unjust suffering? The way Paul and Silas respond was through prayer and worship. God hears, responds. There's a huge earthquake. Everyone in the prison is set free, but nobody leaves. Miraculously, nobody leaves. The jailer comes in. Paul leads him and then his family to the Lord. And Paul and Silas are then escorted out of the city. So that's what we looked at last week. Again, the, the takeaway for us was in a world where people are saying, how can an all good, all loving, all powerful God allow such suffering? Your response in the face of unjust suffering can be a witness to the truth of who Jesus is. So uh, that was last week. Today, we're going to look at Paul and Silas and Timothy. Luke has dropped out of the picture. So those three guys moving through three more cities In chapter 17, Thessalonica, Berea, and Athens. If you can see all those little stars up on the screen, that's where they are. So uh, chapter 17, verse 1. When Paul and his companions, so that Silas and Timothy, had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers from the city officials, shouting, These men who've caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decree, saying there's another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post-bond, and they let them go. So as is his custom, Paul, Silas, Timothy go to the synagogue. And Paul, it says, is reasoning with them. The picture of my mind is he's taking the Old Testament prophecies and he's lining them up with Jesus's life. And he's saying to them, see how these things fit. I don't know which ones he used. We've seen some already in Acts. Maybe he he talks to them from Psalm 16, where God says to David, I'm not going to let my holy one see decay. And Paul is saying, we know that's not true of David. We know where his tomb is. We know he rotted. We can go see the bones like that. That wasn't true of him. So it must be true of another, a descendant of his. 
difficult for um, Jewish believers or, or for Jews to get their minds around a suffering Messiah. That's not how they conceived the Messiah to be. And, and maybe Paul's able to say from Scripture, hey, it says that it would, there would be a stone that was rejected. And that's, look how that lines up with the life of Jesus. And it says in Isaiah 53 that, that this suffering servant would be bruised and would be beaten and would be pierced. And let me tell you how that lines up with the life of Jesus. And again, from Psalm 1610, this whole idea of not seeing decay. And I can give you 500 plus people who've seen this man, Jesus, after he's been crucified, risen from the dead. And maybe that's what he's doing is he's putting those two pieces together for those in the synagogue. He's talking to Jews and he's talking to Greeks in the synagogue who believe and, and worship the God of the Old Testament, but they haven't fully converted into Judaism. And so those groups he's talking to, people who respect and revere the Old Testament, he's using it to point to Jesus as the fulfillment of these Old Testament prophecies to say he is the Messiah. And as is usually the case for Paul, there's a mixed reaction. There are people who say yes, and there are people who begin to follow Jesus. And then there's an element that gets upset with him. The Bible says some of the Jews become jealous Maybe they're jealous because of the number of people who are beginning to follow Jesus. Maybe they're jealous because some of the followers are prominent. It doesn't say. But they get upset, and so they start a riot. And we said last week, the last thing you want to do in a Roman city is cause a disturbance. That's a huge deal, and they crack down on those things super fast. Paul and his guys seem to have somehow been shielded from this. Maybe there was some advance warning, some kind of tip, and they knew what was coming. And so they seemed to be protected. But Jason, we don't know who he is. Maybe he was just the host for Paul and Silas and Timothy. It might have been his house where the church was meeting. Maybe he had, uh, there was a house church in his house. And they come to Jason and they say, we're, we're holding you responsible for the peace of this city. So you and your folks, y'all need to give us some money as a deposit, it's bail, but it's not bail for people. It's basically, it's for us, it would be, you're giving us money, and if anything goes wrong, we're going to hold you responsible, and we're going to take your money. And so that was what was said to Jason in Thessalonica, in Thessalonica, and then Paul and his guys leave. Verse 10, as soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue, which is what they always do, Now, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, But Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join as soon as possible. We don't get a lot of info on what happens in Berea, but it's the same deal. Paul goes to the synagogue, reasoning with them. Good response. The people are of a more noble character. That means they're not necessarily better people. They're more open Minded. They're more open to what Paul is sharing. They're listening to Paul and then examining, holding that up to what they know to be true from the Old Testament, looking for agreement. And things are going well, but the Jews in Thessalonica, which is only 50 miles away, they hear about what Paul is doing in the synagogue and they send this group to cause him problems in Berea. The believers hear about it and they send just Paul to Athens. And so he goes to Athens and he tells Timothy and Silas, To hook up with him later. Verse 16. 
when Paul was waiting for Timothy and Silas in Athens, he was greatly distressed, or another word would be he was infuriated to see that the city was full of idols. So Athens at this point was not, it was four or five hundred years after its heyday, but it was still the cultural and intellectual center of the empire. And so it's full, lots of art, but all of the, most of the art depicted pagan gods. Lots of architecture, most of the architecture were pagan temples. And so everywhere Paul goes, he's being confronted with all of this idolatry. So Paul reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks. So that's what he always does. As well, Paul reasoned in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. So those would be folks who aren't connected to the synagogue at all. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with Paul. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So I'll pause there. So Paul's in the marketplace. Maybe for us, it might be something like the square. He's up there and he's preaching or out there and he's preaching. And there's, again, in in Athens, it's just all about ideas. And so you've got these different philosophical schools of thought. The Epicureans and the Stoics were two of the most prominent. It doesn't matter what they believed. You can look that up. But one thing that was hard for them in either one of those philosophical schools was the idea of a bodily resurrection. That didn't fit in the box for them. And so Paul is talking about a man named Jesus who's been raised from the dead. And they're going, he's a, he's a babbler. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He's not sophisticated in the way he communicates. He seems to have pulled these ideas from all of these different places, and he hasn't really thought them through. So that's what's going on there. So they took Paul and brought Paul to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. So the Areopagus was a group, I think it was 30 men, and they were responsible for religious, uh, moral, and ethical the religious, moral, and ethical matters of the city. And so because of what Paul was preaching, it would fall under their purview. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus, and he said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, this God made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he's appointed. He's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. 
At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. So this is the longest speech in the Bible directed towards a, or longest speech in Acts, directed towards a completely Gentile audience. So this has been studied and parsed and uh, a thousand times. If you find yourself in settings where you've got people who are highly secular, maybe pretty intellectual, this message probably has some things you can do a lot of digging into that to see how to make uh, points of contact with people in that world. So Paul is standing in front of this group of 30 men who spend all day, every day just talking. That's all they do. Talk, 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 talk about all the latest ideas. And what Paul does is he says, hey, I've been walking around your city, and I notice you guys are super religious. And that word can either mean superstitious or devout. I don't know if he's giving a backhanded compliment or not. But he says, you guys are really religious. You even have an altar to a God you don't know. And so I'm going to introduce you to that God that you don't know. And then he begins to to share, and he starts, he says, that God that you don't know, he's the creator of everything that you've seen. He's made everything that you've seen, and because he's made everything that you've seen, he doesn't live in the little buildings that you build for him. He doesn't need those. In fact, he doesn't need you at all. He's the one that sustains you. He doesn't need, he doesn't need us. He doesn't need what we bring. He's above all of that. And he didn't just create everything that we see. He created everyone as well. He created every nation. And he put them in their places. And the reason he did all of that was because he desires relationship. So this God that created everything that you see and created every nation, including you, what he wants most is relationship with you. That's what he's looking for. Even your own poets have some inkling of this when they talk about us as God's offspring. It's almost like we're his long lost children and we're trying somehow to find our way back home. And I'm here to tell you there's a way back home. Up until now, God has intentionally overlooked the fact that y'all didn't know anything about anything. He did. He just he didn't hold it against you that you didn't know who he was. You didn't have enough information. But I'm here to get to fill in the blanks for you. He sent his son. His name is Jesus. He's a perfect representation of God. You don't need stuff made out of gold and silver and stone anymore. And this man, Jesus, again, the full representation of God, he's here to make relationship with God possible. And we know he is divine and we know we can trust him because he was raised from the dead and he loses them at that point. It doesn't again, it doesn't fit in the box for them. As he's talking about ideas, the dominant philosophies of the day didn't have any room for a physical bodily resurrection. And so when Paul says Jesus was raised from the dead, he loses them. I don't think he gets laughed out of the room, but that's when it, there's, a, there's some murmuring there. And you have some people who are interested and they want to hear more. And other people are going, he's nuts. He doesn't know what he's talking about. It doesn't seem like Paul was in Athens for very long. We don't know exactly, but it seems like it's just a handful of weeks, maybe a couple of months, maybe even maybe less. But it seems like a very short period of time. We don't have any record of him planting a church. So I don't know how effective he was, but it does say there were people who believed. There were people from the Areopagus who believed. It says there's a number of others as well. So, again, that's typical for him. Everywhere he goes, proclaims the gospel to people who haven't heard it. Some respond positively. And some reject. 
So I was thinking about that, reading that chapter. We've been talking about this idea of being witnesses since April as we've walked through Acts. And I don't know when we read Paul if you have any connection to him at all. I don't know if you're reading about his life and going, that's, that's just not me. I'm not going on a three-year mission trip. I'm not doing that. I'm not going around to all of these unreached peoples and proclaiming the gospel to people who've never heard of Jesus. And even if I was doing all of that, I wouldn't be doing it the way he is. I wouldn't be standing up in front of a group of people and delivering a message. I, I hate public speaking. It, makes, it scares me to death. Or you know, no, no Muslims are inviting me to their mosque to say, tell us about Jesus. That's not happening for me. And so I don't know if you feel connected to as we walk through this with Paul or not, but I want to try today to take what's here, his life, and maybe squish it into our life if I can. One of the things you'll notice in Acts chapter 17 is Paul adjusts his message to his audience. He doesn't say the same thing in Thessalonica that he says in Athens. And the reason he doesn't say the same thing is because it's two different groups of people. When he's in a synagogue, those are his people. Those are fellow Jews. They know the Old Testament. They know Yahweh. They know all of these prophecies about a coming Messiah. And he takes advantage of all of that. He is speaking their language. He says to them, guys... Like We all know this. We all know that God, throughout the Old Testament, promised to send us a Messiah. Now, let me tell you who he is, taking what he knows to be true of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. He, put those two, he puts those two things together. When he's in Athens, they don't care about the Old Testament. They don't know who Yahweh is. They don't know about any prophecies of a Messiah. It would be ridiculous for him to quote the Bible. They would say, we don't care at all. We don't care what that book says. We have our own books. So he doesn't, he doesn't even bring it into the picture. He doesn't bring it into the discussion. He starts with the altar he sees in their city. Hey, here's a point of connection. Y'all worship a God you don't know. I can, I can introduce you. He, he uses some of their own literature. Your own poets have said we're God's offspring. Let me explain to you what that might mean. It's the same message, different delivery. He adjusts based on the audience. As you think about the people who you rub shoulders with, if you, as you think about the circles that you run in, recognize everybody is somewhere. If God desires all men and women to come to a knowledge of the truth, he desires everyone to be saved. That's 1 Timothy 2.4. That's a true statement. So everyone who is alive is somewhere in their relationship with God because God's desires to be in relationship with them. And he's their creator, so he gets to set the terms. Everyone is in some level of relationship. They're somewhere. There are all kinds of complicated or, or more um, detailed explanations. That's just me. I just put everybody in a box. And my boxes are really big. Not for the sake of labeling people. Definitely not for the sake of judging people. But for the sake of saying, do I know where the people who I love are? Do I have any sense of where they are? So then do I have any sense of what it means to be a witness to them? It's not my job to convert. That's the Holy Spirit's job. But if I'm supposed to be a witness in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth, well, it, maybe it looks different. It looked different for Paul. And so maybe it looks different based on who I'm talking to. And do I have any sense of discernment or understanding as I'm interacting with people where they are? Some people are completely disinterested in Jesus. They don't care. He seems irrelevant to their life. They don't even know if he actually existed, and if he did, it doesn't matter. They're totally fine. You start talking about a Savior, and they say, what do I need to be saved from? I'm good. 
They're ignorant. Some people are, are not in a bad way. They don't know. They're unaware. They're hostile. Any number of those conditions that say, I'm, I'm not interested in what you're talking about. Many people, that, that's a lot of the guys in Athens that Paul is engaging with. It's these philosophers who are going, you don't, you don't even make sense. You've got people who are open. I think that's the Bereans. They're seeking They have a set of beliefs for sure, but they're willing to say, maybe there's something I don't know. Many people are in that spot. There's some level of desire. Ecclesiastes 3 says God's put eternity in the hearts of everyone is created. And at some point, that eternity begins to call out. And maybe you're in a relationship with people and you can kind of sense that. They're beginning to ask deeper questions or they're beginning to look at life more broadly, not just moving from day to day to day. Maybe there's been some major life event and it's caused them to step back and say, what, what really matters? They're open. Doesn't necessarily mean that they've bought into Jesus and everything that, that he says. But there's, there's an, a willingness there to engage in some of those conversations. There, many of you, I, you've passed through, you were disinterested and then you were a seeker and you were a believer. You believed the fundamentals of the gospel. You believed that you were a sinner. You believe Jesus died on your behalf and by putting your faith and trust in him, you can be forgiven and, and move into a right relationship with God. You believe all of those things. You're, you're saved. You're Christian. There's disciples, people who are actively seeking to become more like Jesus in their identity and their character and their lifestyle. People who are actually following after him. So what we talked about last week. It's the difference between just kind of saying, yeah, I think those things are true, and actually standing on the chair, moving after Jesus. And then there's disciple makers, people who recognize I have a responsibility to help other people in this process as well. I'm living out my calling. I'm using the gifts God has given me. Again, in our terminology, I'm doing my deal, making disciples. Everybody's somewhere. And again, I don't, it's, not for the, it's not for label's sake. It's for... Love's sake. How do I best love you where you are? Me knowing where you are helps. What does it mean for me to be a witness? It helps if I know. So what, what do we do? We Simple. You, you listen to people. Not just their words. You listen to their heart. You listen to what's underneath the words. What are the fears? What are the hopes? What are the beliefs that you hear? I don't think you get it in 30 seconds. To me, it's a bit of a longer term commitment relationally. And as you're with people over time, these things begin to come out. And the whole time you're asking the Lord for discernment. God, I, sh- I want to know. Again, not so I can judge and not so I can label, but so I can love them well. Where, where are they? What, what is the eternity in their hearts that's crying out? Again, think about Paul. He's able to walk into the synagogue because he knows Jews. He's able to say, this is what you're hoping for. You're hoping for the fulfillment of this promise for a Messiah to come and to make everything right. Well, let me tell you who he is. It's because he knows them. In Athens, he's just walking around and he's taking in the vibe of the city. And he's able to say, y'all are so afraid of offending the gods that you set up an altar to an anonymous one. That's how afraid you are that you're going to miss one. You want to make sure you've got all your bases covered. So just in case there's one you don't know, you set up an altar to an unknown God. Well, let me tell you who he is. They're listening. They're paying attention. Again, not just to what's here on the surface, but what's underneath. You know how to do that. Y'all are all good relationally. You can listen. Hear what people 
or saying, and then you take Jesus into that spot. Instead of saying, hey, y'all come on. Y'all come on, I got this pat way of sharing my faith or whatever. I have my standard testimony that I, what Paul did. Let me tell you who the Messiah is. Let me tell you who this God is that you don't know. You, you, you adapt. You don't change the message. You adapt your method to meet people where they are. So everybody's somewhere. Everybody that you love is somewhere. Maybe begin to ask the Lord. Give me some insight. Give me some discernment. I want to know. Don't pick everybody. Take one or two. Show me where they are. Then begin, God, help me to know what it looks like to be a witness. What, do they act, what would be helpful to, for them to hear? Not just what I want to tell them. What would actually benefit them to hear about you? So, one, everybody's somewhere. Second thing, as I was reading Acts 17, we're part of everybody, and we're somewhere also. Think about the difference between the Thessalonians and the Bereans. Paul does the same thing. He goes to the synagogue. He probably speaks very uh, the same message in a lot of ways because he's in the synagogue in both places. He's probably using the same Old Testament scriptures that he uses in every synagogue. But for some reason, the Thessalonians in general reject. It says some of them believed. The Bereans are much more responsive. It says many of them believed. They're not necessarily... The difference there is it says the Bereans are in... Of a more noble character. They're more open. It doesn't mean they're chasing fads and trends. There's just a humility about them to say, you know, I probably don't know everything there is to know. I know what I believe. And so I'm going to test what you're telling me based on what I know to be true. But I'm also willing to say, I probably don't know everything there is to know. And so I'm going to give you, Paul, some space to tell me about Jesus. I'm absolutely going to check you. And it says they daily studied the Old Testament. They wanted to know, is what Paul's saying true? Does it line up with what we know from the Old Testament? And as those boxes were checked, more and more of them said yes and began to follow. And so I think about for me, am I more like a Thessalonian or am I more like a Berean? If everybody is somewhere, well, I'm everybody, so I'm somewhere also. Can I hear what God is saying to me? When Jesus delivers these parables in Matthew and Mark and in Luke, one of the things he says is, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. The Thessalonians didn't seem to have ears, and the Bereans did. In Revelation, there's seven different times that where we read Jesus saying, let, excuse me, he says, hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. And so I'm, can I hear what the Holy Spirit is saying to me? Am I open to that? Or if I feel like I've got it all figured out, I'm good. There's nothing new for me. I know everything there is to know. So Jesus, again, thinking parables, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he tells this one of the soils. You know it. It's parable of the soils or parable of the sower, whatever you want to call it. And there's four different types of soil that represent four different heart conditions. One is this path, and it's hard, and we just, we'll call it revelation. We'll say revelation is something you don't know. It's new information to you. Revelation can't penetrate. So it's snatched up by the devil. And there's soil that's shallow. It's full of rocks. And revelation can penetrate, but the roots can't go deep. And as soon as there's trouble or persecution, the plant withers and dies. And then there's, there, there's, soil, or there's, a heart, there's soil that's weedy, and it's a heart that's crowded. And this is where we live, in a community of abundance. We live in this place where you have all of these things that grow up in our heart. All of these things that compete with attention or compete for our attention with revelation, and they can choke it out. 
And that's where most of us live. Most of us don't live in a place where we're persecuted and afflicted because of our relationship with Jesus. But we do live in a place where there are all kinds of things that compete for time and money and energy and effort. They threaten to choke out that revelation in your heart. And what we want to be is good soil. We want to be this place that's, that, that there's space and there's depth and there's the, the, the revelation can thrive and we can hear it and respond to it quickly. It's where we want to be. The question is, is that where I, is that where I am? And so without grading yourself, because that's not the point, but it's just a question, if I were to ask you, when was the last time you felt like you had something fresh from God? When would you, how far back would you go? When was the last time you read the Bible and you thought, man, that's good. I didn't know that. That's, that's new for me. That's something new for me about God's character. That's something new for me about how to love other people. That's something new for me about what it looks like to be faithful. Again, this isn't a, it's not a test. You don't get an A if it's been in a week. and a B. It's, not, it's not that. But it's a question. And if you would say, I can't. I don't know. I can't remember. It's been a really long time. Maybe it, it's, the next question is, well, why is that so? Maybe God is not revealing things to you. We all go through dark nights of the soul, and you could absolutely be in a season where God is saying, I'm going to pull back and see if you'll keep coming after me. Or it could be, possibly, that your heart's not necessarily receptive right now, for whatever reason. Are you willing to hear that? Maybe it's something with, with the condition of my own heart, the, the soil in here is not receptive for whatever reason to revelation. Again, for mo- if I were to label you, I would say most of us live in that crowded world more than any of the others because we do live in a, a society of abundance and there's so many things that compete. And so it, it's very difficult for us to give revelation priority, not just in terms of time, yes, time, but also any type of... Um, follow-up, any type of implementation, it's hard for us because there's not space for us. It's almost like um, if you've ever put a puzzle together, once all the pieces are together, it's much more difficult to move things around the more pieces you get put together. And that's for most of us, that's how our lives are. They're so tightly packed, it's hard to move anything around. So even if we receive some level of revelation, we get something fresh, from a message or our quiet time or a conversation with somebody, it's difficult for us to think about how am I actually supposed to implement that in my life. I don't want to put that on you if it's not true, but that's where most of us live. So if that's you, if you would say, I'm not sure that the soil is good here. I want it to be. What do I do about that? Simple. You ask. You just ask. God, I want, I want to have ears to hear. I want to have ears to hear, hear what you're saying to me through the Bible. I want to have ears to hear what you're saying to me through conversations with other people. In Numbers, God speaks through a donkey. A donkey. He can, so you can, he can speak through whoever, right? And you say that, God, I want, to, I want to be open. Some of you are news junkies. You ever ask, God, what are you saying to me through the news? What do you want to say to ask? You've got to give him some space. Again, it's, it's ears to hear. God, I want to pay attention to what you're saying. I don't just want to wake up in the morning and say, speak to me, and then kind of go through the day. 
I want to be sensitive. And then I want to implement whatever that is. Kind of the kingdom value is use it or lose it. And so if God reveals something to you, if there's some truth, his expectation is that you're going to fold that into your life very quickly. It's simple. Ask and pay attention and then respond. If you begin to practice that, I think you'll pretty quickly, you'll move in that direction of good soil. And you'll be now. Is that good? All right, let's pray. Two things. First thing, I want you to think about this idea of being witnesses. I didn't share this at 11 last week. So let me give you a little background. I was, I've been reading two books at the same time. One is by a guy named Tim Keller, and it's called Making Sense of God. And he's a super brilliant pastor in Manhattan working with super secular, cultured, intellectual elites. So he's written this book saying, here's, here's a way of beginning to stir hearts of people who are in that world. I'm reading another book called Chasing the Dragon by a British missionary named Jackie Pullinger. And she's a missionary to this place called the Walled City in Hong Kong, which is full. It's actually been torn down now. But it was when she was there in the 70s. Her primary target was a, were illiterate teenage boys who were addicted to heroin. Chasing the dragon was, a, was there. Was, that was what they called her, t- taking heroin. It was their way of taking it. Very, very different people. Both evangelists and both super effective in their context. People would look at Jackie Pullinger like she had a third eye if she did in Manhattan what she did in Hong Kong. She spent most of her time when she was ministering to people praying in tongues. That's what she did. And that was her key to helping people get off drugs. She said every time you feel like you're having with got story after story after story after story of that happening in the lives of these teenage boys. Try to do that in Manhattan. In the secular, intellectual, cultural world where Tim Keller is. Tim Keller, again, the people who he's reaching, very different And he's super effective. He wouldn't last for 30 seconds in the walled city. But he doesn't have to because that's not where he's called. And so I want you, first of all, to recognize where God has planted you. Thank him for where that is. And recognize he planted you there. Not me and not anybody else. You. And he's given you everything that you need to be effective in that place. We sent missionaries to Australia at 9 o'clock this morning. They're, they're, that's, them. that's them. God is putting them in Melbourne. He's put the Fritchmans in St. Simons. He's put, where has he put you? You're going to be effective there as you yield to the working of the Holy Spirit in your life. I want you to hear that and receive that. I don't want you to compare yourself to others. I don't want you thinking about what you lack. I want you to recognize God formed you and knit you together in your mother's womb. 
and he knew what he was doing. And then he called you and planted you in a place and he knew what he was doing. And he offers you his spirit to empower you in that place to be who you are as a witness. And he knows what he's doing. So God, for any in here who shrink back, who pull back, who see themselves as less than, would you remind them even now, would you affirm in them calling, gifting, anointing? Would you encourage them that the place where you've planted them is on purpose? I'm going to shift and I want you to think about your own heart and just ask the Lord, God, show me the condition of my own heart. Make it multiple choice. God, one of these four. Am I resistant? Am I shallow? Am I crowded? Or am I good? If it's anything other than good, if it's good, celebrate and rejoice and thank the Lord. If it's anything else, if you're willing, repent. God, I confess my heart is crowded. I got all kinds of weeds and they're all good. I repent, but God, honestly, I don't know what to do about it. I've got to work. I can't get rid of any children yet. I have responsibilities. I can't figure out how to create more space. I confess that there's not enough. And also say, I don't know what to do about it. So I'm asking for your grace. You've got to show me. You've got to show me. How do I make space for revelation? Not just to hear, but to implement, to act on. You can pray something like that in your heart. If yours is different, just use that as a template you're resistant or if you're shallow. God, I pray for us. I pray that the hearts of every man and woman in this room would be good, receptive. We want your word to thrive in us. God, if I can say we want to be people who you trust with more revelation because we're doing well with what you've already given us. We want to know you in deeper and fuller ways and we want to live more faithful and fruitful lives. So, God, give us ears to hear what you're saying to us individually and what you're saying to us collectively. In Jesus' name, amen.